Oh, I'm so thrilled. Thank you so much for thinking of me. Well, I'm super excited to get started. Awesome. So one thing that really intrigued me about your books when I read them is that you really write from the perspectives of characters who might have been overlooked or forgotten in history. And I feel like a lot of readers don't see themselves in the books they read. Um, but that I feel like that's starting to change, especially in YA literature. And what does the idea of representation mean to you? Oh, I think the idea of representation um, for me is is being able to see and feel ourselves in the story that we're reading. And for me particularly, because I write historical fiction, um, through characters and story, suddenly history becomes human. And we we can walk beside a character holding their hand, feeling their fear. And it's at that moment when we're immersed that we really feel connected um, to other human beings and connected to ourselves, asking these questions, how would I react? Um, in this situation. So for me, representation is is not only seeing ourselves in these stories, but feeling uh, ourselves in these stories. Absolutely. That's a great way to look at it. Um, I felt as if, even though I had never experienced what the characters have experienced, that I could really empathize with the things that they were going through. Um, and that, that kind of leads to my next question, which is, these are characters in history who are ordinary people faced with extraordinary circumstances. Um, have you ever faced a similar circumstance in your own life? And how, how did that work out for you? I have. And it's interesting, though, when I began writing many years ago, I was writing about experiences that perhaps um, weren't of my own life or my own making. Um, you know, characters who were experiencing uh, such intense loss and really showing us like, okay, it's not how um, we choose a certain hardship, but how we face the hardship that chooses us. And as I move along now, and I'm working on my fifth novel, um, my fourth will be published this fall, I find that some of the extraordinary circumstances that I've written about, I've actually gone on to experience myself, certainly not being um, deported to Siberia or being on a ship that is sinking, but in terms of, of a very intense loss. Um, uh, I wrote uh, Between Shades of Grey uh, years ago. It was released on my mother's birthday. I wrote the mother character based on my own mom, and it was intensely painful when uh, that mother character, um, you know, passed away in the book. And fast forward, um, you know, faced this very similar situation with my own mom, uh, where I was living inside of my own story, clutching my mother uh, as I was losing her, and there was nothing that I could do. Um, and it wasn't until after that I reflected upon it, how similar the circumstances um, were. And, and it's definitely one thing to write about it and another to, um, to experience it. And what it's taught me uh, over the years is that um, timing for readers is very important. There are some readers who email me and say, I started your book and I just can't do it right now. And now I understand that. So um, as, and, and I know this will continue. And as I move forward through life um, and face challenges and, and experiences, um, you know, I'll, I'll, 
I think I'm learning myself from my own characters and their experiences. I think that's a really interesting point. There have been books that I've greatly enjoyed where I haven't been able to read them because of something that might have been going on in my life at that time. And I think our readers could certainly identify with that, too. Definitely. Timing um, is is so interesting. And even not only on the reader side, but uh, if you have any you know writers who are listening to this podcast, they have to keep in mind um, that sometimes when we submit our work to editors and agents, they also are bringing uh, existing experiences and feelings and emotions um, to the table. And it might be just a particular day that they pick up a book and they say, oh, this isn't a manuscript or a submission. This isn't for me. Mm. Um, and it just might be that particular time and that particular day. And I received so many uh, rejections for Between Shades of Grey before it was finally published. Um, and later on to learn why people did reject it. And, and in some cases, it was simply just not the right day for that person. That's not the way they were feeling at that moment. That wasn't what they were looking for. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And um, among the histories that you've written about, like uh, the experiences of the family in, in Between Shades of Grey and the sinking of the Gusloff in Salt to the Sea, these are histories that people may not have read about in school or in their their everyday lives. And what led you to really become fascinated with writing about these histories? What led me to it is that when I began meeting people who had survived what I considered the unsurvivable um, and had experienced these underrepresented pieces of history, some of the people, the survivors, felt that the world had forgotten them. And honestly, that broke my heart because I knew it wasn't true. Um, yes, maybe their history had fallen through the cracks, but I felt that if, if we could share this history through characters and story, um, that people would not be forgotten. And in fact, young readers have such a sense of justice that they would be the ones uh, who could help me bring this history out of the dark. So that was my first motivation. Uh, and of course, I have a personal motivation because uh, in both Between Shades of Grey and Salt to the Sea, those reflect uh, my own personal family stories. My father's family was deported to Siberia. My father was in a refugee camp for nine years. My father's cousin was uh, supposed to be on the Wilhelm Gusloff and was caught up in that refugee track. And so it started first with my own family, and, and now it's moved beyond that. And I find that when stories of hardship and struggle are suddenly recognized, we can take a step toward restoring human dignity for maybe not even the, the survivors, but even for the victims' family members. Yeah, when you, when, you put, you, when you put a human side and a name to someone whose story has been forgotten, it makes all that much difference, I think. Yes, you've articulated it perfectly. That's what I should have said. Exactly. <laughs> no, I, um, and I know I've been always fascinated by history, and uh, I've been asked this question and asked this question to others as well. But if you could meet uh, someone from history, either someone from your own family or someone who may be more well-known, uh, who would you want to meet? And what would you want to talk about with that person? I... I would love to meet my father's extended family members who were deported to Siberia 
Because imagine when writing the book, the most difficult thing uh, was interviewing these people who had survived and they would share their story with me. And afterward, they would ask me, well, tell me about your family's story. And because um, many of them had perished by the time I, I was wanted to write the book, they had passed away, I didn't have my own story. And so, you know, that's, I would really like to meet um, my grandfather's extended family who was deported and learn about their experience. Absolutely. And one thing that was um, rather poignant when I read uh, Between Shades of Grey is I'm also of Eastern European extraction, and I know very little about my own family. And I'm likewise with you, I would want to be able to meet those people and learn about their stories and their experiences. Well, this is something that's miraculous about uh, a book, and particularly a historical novel, because the research, it never ends. And what I mean by that is I will spend three to five years working on a novel, I'll turn it in, and then once it's published, it belongs to the readers. And I get so excited when I get emails from readers who say, you're not going to believe this, but my grandfather knew your grandfather. Oh, wow. And, and readers are bringing pieces of my own family history back to me. And it's so beautiful and it's so miraculous. So even with regard to your history, um, you, know, you might think, oh, it's lost. It's not. It's just hiding. And this amazing thing ha happens when you, when you start to talk about it and, 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 and focus on it. It's like the universe responds and, and comes back to you with, with answers. And I find it so fascinating. Um, even with, with my book, Salt to the Sea, which was about the, the single largest maritime disaster in history, I'm still receiving emails um, from families who, who had uh, family members uh, on the Gooseloft, people who survived, people who didn't, and people are asking me, if you hear from this person who was from Latvia, I met them on the deck uh, when we first boarded the ship, and I, now I keep this big spreadsheet trying to, to put people together and, and reconnect people, so it's such an honor and a privilege. Absolutely, and I think with um, some of the online resources that we have now, like Ancestry.com and some of the message boards, um, that allows for a lot of the long-lost connections as well. It does, but I cannot stress enough the importance of um, maintaining our own family history. And what I mean by that is I tell young people in middle school and high school, if they want to give their family a great gift, Take that old box of photos mm. out of the closet and sit down with their grandparents and ask them who, the names of the people who are in the photos and write the names on the back. Um, you know, that, that will help so much in preserving the history. And we've got thousands of photos on our phone, and yes, some of us have facial recognition, but no, but those photos aren't labeled. And I just fear, um, I, literally, it keeps me up at night. Oh, my goodness, this history is just going to be lost. And we don't know what was happening in the photo or what the event was. Or, um, and I think previous generations, I know my grandmother was very diligent about labeling all of her photos. And as a result, she's preserved um, our family history. We don't have to create this family fiction just from looking at an unlabeled photo. Yeah, um, one of the things that I did with my, my own grandmother before she passed away is I, I did sort of a an oral history project of sorts of her experiences in uh, Boston growing up in the 20s and 30s, which was really fascinating. 
oh, that had to be so fascinating. And what a gift for your family to have that in her own words. Oh, that gives me chills. (laughs) Yeah, and I know that another thing that really we see in in the novels that you've written is that young people are are coming of age and in some cases extraordinarily difficult times. And I know a lot of our readers are also going through hard times of their own. And what would you want to, I know you said you've um, spoken to some of the students at middle schools and high schools, but is there a single piece of advice that you would want to give them to, to ensure, to assure them rather that their struggles are, are universal? Yes, I would say um, we have to give ourselves the courage to fail. And I believe that so deeply um, because failure is a prerequisite to success. And unfortunately, um, these days, there are a lot of pressure on young people um, to, be, to be perfect, to be these high achievers. High, and, you know, and that's not realistic. You know, we have to realize that we are perfect with our imperfections. And there's beauty in imperfection, and that's what makes us real and dimensional. And when we, we fail at something, there can be such a great learning experience. And I tell students, I am the biggest failure ever. If you, I can't even count how many times. And I'm not talking like, oh, I, I kind of made a mistake. I'm talking epic, like epic failures. <laughs> but as a result, um, I, I can change and I can grow and I can learn from that and then that helps me look at the failure not as something negative or, or and, and something that haunts me but as something really powerful and something that empowers me and so if you look at failure with a frame of reference like that like empowerment and learning it completely changes the the dynamic um, and life is revision and I say that because I am a, you know not only a writer I'm a rewriter and as writers, oh my goodness, we get to go back and tweak our writing again and again and again. And that's what we do in life. It's so rare to take one single road to get to a destination. We don't. We get on the road. We get lost. We turn around. We get sit in the parking lot. We cry our eyes out. We, you know, we, we turn around in a cul-de-sac. We hit a dead end. And finally, we get to um, where we're going. And that's, that's the journey. Um, so, yeah, I would tell young people, embrace uh, what others might consider uh, a failure. It's truly a prerequisite to success. I think that's a great piece of advice, and I have what I often have to remind myself that that failure is not the end of the world. <laughs> it, exactly. and and truly, we can grow from our our failures. When I tell students, Oh my goodness, first, my, the, uh, I worked in the music business for 22 years before uh, becoming a writer and the failures, big time failures that I experienced there. Um, and it gave me a thick skin. Um, you know, reviews now, if someone reviews my book and says absolutely mean or horrible things, it, it doesn't bother me. You know, <laughs> it, it really doesn't. And how many times my, uh, my first novel was rejected? Uh, before a publisher decided to publish it. And now that book is published in, you know, over 50 countries and 37 languages. So that's a pretty good failure. I would say so. <laughs> uh, I know that I've, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about, for example, J.K. Rowling getting rejected all those times, and now she probably has her own private continent. So <laughs> Exactly. And, and she does. And that's a great example because she is so brilliant, 
so brilliant. And can you believe that the brilliance of Harry Potter was overlooked? And that's just because it's subjective. It came across someone's desk. Maybe they didn't have, I don't know, you know, uh, they weren't in the right frame of mind. Maybe it just wasn't for them. But think about people who passed on that, which is arguably one of the, the most successful, you know, series ever in, in history. And like you said, now she's got her own, her own continent. <laughs> and... Another thing that I always like to ask folks is, I know nobody can do to become successful or stay successful on their own. And I myself, I, I always, always love the power of having a mentor in your life. Is there a specific person who you would consider your own mentor or your own role model? Oh, this is such a great question. Um, I know that there are creative people who work and succeed on their own, but I'm not one of them. Um, and for me, it's absolutely a team, and I love to collaborate. And in terms of a mentor, yes, I was so fortunate that um, when I was very young working in the music business, there was a, a, a songwriter, Desmond Child, who took me under his wing. And Desmond has sold over 300 million um, records. And he has written songs, some of the biggest hit songs in the world. He's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And I was initially an intern and then an assistant and then was part of his management team. And Desmond taught me so much about the power of story. And a song is a three-minute story. Um, and he helped me realize um, why story, why and how story provides a framework that allows uh, human beings to better understand one another. When we understand one another's story, um, you know, it facilitates understanding and dialogue. And, and that's why on all of these music shows like The Voice and American Idol, they're always showing the contestants' story before they sing because it gives us context. And Desmond um, was not only a mentor, he, he remains one of, uh, you know, one of my mentors, and I'm constantly learning from him. And I do have to say, um, also for young listeners, you know, we often want a mentor um, or a relationship like that. And I think the way to find that is always offer to give before you ask to get. And what I mean by that is I know a lot of people, you know, they want to work in some exciting entertainment jobs or publishing jobs. But young people, you have a lot of skills that people my age, we don't have. And if you are a great video editor or if you are a graphic designer or have some of these talents that, you know, people my age might not have, if you offer to work with someone, hey, how can I help you? Offer, you know, to give before you, you ask to get, before you ask someone to, to help. And that's what I did with Desmond, and that's how he became my mentor. That's great. I love that. And um, I know a lot of young people say they possibly want careers in creative industries, whether they want to be a graphic designer, they want to be a writer, they want to be an artist. And I, I always hear them say, I want to do that, but... And how would you answer that but? Because I know these, these positions are extraordinarily competitive, and it is hard to make a living, but as, as you've shown us, that it can be done. Yes, and I would say, um, to change just one word in that sentence, I want to do that and. Instead of I want to do that but, I want to do that and. And the reason I say that is because Initially, I started out and um, I went to college and had a very small music scholarship for opera and I wasn't good enough. And um, 
And I, I changed gears. So I was doing that and I was studying finance. And then when I moved to Hollywood um, to work in the music business, I was interning and volunteering for these songwriters and um, working on the side. And so as a result, I worked in artist management. I worked in television. I worked in video. Um, I've worked in film. Now I'm working in books. Um, and so it, it's an and, not a but. And as you navigate through this journey and experience these different things, it'll help you really distill and hone in on what your talents are and what really gives you uh, joy. Some things I thought I would love, once I tried them, I thought, ooh, you know, not so much. Um, and, and so I would, <laughs> you know, kind, kind of change gears. Um, and it, it's through that and that really the experience comes in and, and we never know we can think we might like something um uh i see college students all the time they get a summer job and an internship and they think this is the career path that they're choosing and then it turns out not to be what they thought um but that's such good information that is so valuable so i would say replace it with and that's perfect i i know that i've studied and uh read about improv throughout the years and that's the cardinal rule of improv training is yes and, which you always have to accept what you're given and run with that. Oh, I love that. I didn't know that. But yes, accept what you're given and then build off of that. Right. It's, not a dead, it's not a dead end. It's, it's, it's an open road. Um, and you might leave something behind and take a different road, you know, and, you know, <laughs> take a new journey. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's so much more so many more doors that open if you are open to exploring what's behind them instead of just shutting it if it's something that you think you don't like yes i agree and and also keep in mind that when i began my journey and wanted to work in the music business and i grew up in a suburb of detroit the daughter of you know um a, a you know lithuanian refugee and um an east prussian mother and we didn't have connections. We didn't have any special circumstances. We didn't, but truly your passion can lead you there and people will recognize that. Um, and, and when people say, well, I don't have any connections, uh, I didn't either. <laughs> I didn't either, but I really had the, the will and the fire to, to, you know, to get it done and try to, to experience new things. Yeah. I'm rereading um, out of the easy right now. And I, I really feel like Joe's story is uh, really resonates, especially with my own life, where if you're bound and determined enough to do something, then you'll find a way to make that happen. Oh, I'm so glad you bring up Out of the Easy. You know, Between Shades of Grey reflected the journey of my father's family, and Out of the Easy reflects the journey of my mother's family. And you're exactly right. 18-year-old um, Josie Moraine, born into a really disadvantaged or what would be perceived as a disadvantaged circumstance, but no, she decides she's going to be the author of her own destiny and that sometimes the families we build are stronger than those we're born into. And that reflects my mother's um, journey. Um, and so I, I love that book. And I have to tell you, I, I wrote Between Shades of Grey, and when it was over a year where everyone was rejecting the book, I decided to write this book out of the easy, which is a little bit different than my other, um, my other books. And I'm so glad that I was able to, you know, because this is a, 
um, a little bit different than my other books, but very important to me personally. And I had such a ball writing that book. Yeah, I love I love anything set in New Orleans, especially. So that was an extra treat. Oh, good. And that kind of leads me to to my last question, which is: I know you said that you have a fourth book coming out this fall, and you're working on a fifth. Um, is that something that you can share with our readers? Yes, and uh, and also I have to point out that I can always talk about what I'm working on because I write historical fiction. I write the books, but they're not my stories. History writes my stories. So I know other authors, if they're coming up with a plot, that plot is purely their own. But mine, you know, is based in history, so I don't own it. So I'm always eager to talk about it. My next book, The Fountains of Silence, um, is set in Spain in the 1950s. It comes out in October, and it focuses on um, uh, an American boy who travels to Madrid in the summer and meets a Spanish girl, and they come from very, very different backgrounds. They're fenced by fear and silence and circumstance, but they're desperate to understand one another. And over this period of the summer, they discover a secret um, of the dictatorship of Spain. In the 1950s, um, Francisco Franco was the dictator in Spain, and his dictatorship lasted 36 years. And together, this Spanish girl and the American boy discover that the regime is stealing infants. And infants that are born to families that don't align with fascism are being gifted and sold to fascist families. And they estimate now um, that over 300,000 children were stolen. Um, so that's sort of the, the storyline of the Fountains of Silence. That's, that's yet another piece of history that I had no inkling of, and I'm sure most people hadn't. I hadn't either. And also, um, we don't know much about Franco. And he was a dictator for 36 years. And people often say, oh, you're writing about Spain. I love Spain. Wait, remind me, who's Franco? <laughs> uh, and yeah, and so I'm excited to write about, uh, to, for this book to come out. It comes out in October, and I've already started on my next book, which is set um, in Romania. And I am, I am so excited um, to bring this story of Romania and the Romanian Revolution uh, to readers. So is that also during the uh, during the Eastern Bloc era, or? Yes, it is. It's uh, actually during the fall of, of communism in the 80s. Okay. Uh, that's something I would be very keen to read, because I was born in what was then the uh, Czechoslovakia in, in the late 70s, so. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. I We have to talk, you know, uh, uh, as an aside here about your personal history. That sounds really fascinating. Indeed. I, I, again, I'm piecing together my own history. So that's, that's one avenue I'd love to explore one day. Excellent. So I really want to thank you, Ruta, for joining us today. I've, I've been so fascinated by everything we've talked about. And I'm really eager to read your new works that you have coming out. Um, for our readers who want to find out more about you and your work, um, what's the best place to do that? The best place is to go to my website, which is simply my name, rudasepetis.com. And if that's too difficult, uh, they can go to historyishiding.com, and it'll take them right to me. Um, or I am on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And, you know, an author has nothing without 
readers. Um, and I'm so grateful to, um, to the readers for helping me bring history out of the dark. I'm truly grateful. That's terrific. And I am going to, uh, we have several of your books available in our accessible formats for our readers, and I'll go ahead and attach those to your podcast, if that's all right, so they can check those out. I would love that. I'm so grateful that you were able to join us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Ruta.